Hi, everyone. I'm attorney Donna DiMaggio Berger, and this is Take It to the Board, where we speak condo and HOA. Today, we're going to be talking about landscaping and the important role it plays in many communities with my guest, Brian Steele. Brian is the Director of Operations at East Coast Facilities for the Southeastern Region. Brian started his landscaping career in Southern California and eventually made his way down to South Florida. Brian is a horticulturalist who graduated from the University of Maryland. He is also a certified and licensed pest control operator for the state of Florida. Brian has spent the last 37 years serving the green industry in multiple roles. Prior to his current role at East Coast Facilities, he spent nine years as vice president at ABM Landscape and Golf, a Fortune 500 company. Over the course of his career, Brian has successfully worked with both regional and national accounts within the commercial office, hospitality, sports and entertainment, community association and government industries. Brian, welcome to Take It to the Board. Hello. (laughs) (laughs) We're happy to have you here. Yes, thanks for having me. Brian, people can get very wound up about the plant material the board wants to install. I mean, I've seen this for years as the Community Association Council when I go out to board meetings that some of the most hotly debated topics include what kind of plants are going to go into the community. These kind of landscaping projects can also reveal fractions on the board and fractions inside the community. My first question to you is why are landscaping choices so emotional in community associations? Yeah, well, let me start by saying I've been to to a lot of those meetings as well over the years. It starts sort of at a fundamental level, sort of the the landscape, just like any other component or part of the real estate asset. It's a component of the real estate asset. And, And just like any asset, people get pretty passionate about something they own. I think that's where it starts. I like to use the analogy It's kind of like any other room in the house, except this is an outdoor space versus an indoor space. But plants and the landscape is, to use an analogy, very much like a piece of furniture. People get pretty passionate about the type of furniture they like. Some people like it. Some people don't. There's disagreements. It's no different than when picking components of a landscape. So can you imagine 99 people trying to decide on the sofa you want to purchase? The color, the style? You know, that's what you're saying is it is a component, but it it becomes emotional because you've got a lot of different people with different tastes and different opinions. Yeah. If you ever walk through a rooms to go on a Saturday morning (laughs) and watch the husband and wife or a family walking around looking at it's very much the same. There's preferences, there's differences, there's there's likes, dislikes. And I think it's it's very similar to to that. So we always hear about curb appeal when it comes to property values. How important is landscaping to that curb appeal? Yeah. So years ago, uh, one of my very first mentors in the industry taught me this cliche, you know, green grass, no weeds, awesome flowers. And there's a lot of other components to a landscape, but, you know, those three things impact the curb appeal of a community more than anything else. And I think when those three pieces or components of the landscape are in order, it hugely impacts the overall curb appeal of our community. No, I had an interior designer on last season. Her name was Patty Mowry, and she talked about the fact that when she does a design for an association, she likes an indoor-outdoor design, a flow. So if it's a more Mediterranean-looking community, she's going to go with a more Mediterranean-looking landscape. If it's a more Cape Cod-looking community, she's going to try to bring that aesthetic you know, from the outside in. Has that been your experience as well? Yeah, again, I think it has a lot to do with personal preference. But yeah, I think in creating an outdoor space, certainly it has a theme 
And in many instances, yeah, uh, homeowners will want that sort of continuation from the indoors to the outdoors. Now, whether that's synonymous with the theme inside, that depends on the individuals. But certainly, I think conceptually, there's a theme. They want to create some type of theme for their outdoor space, no doubt. So you're going to be working and presenting your plan, your proposal to the decision makers. I would imagine sometimes that's directly with the board and sometimes it's with the landscaping committee. How effective are these landscaping committees? Because my experience has been the committees can take on a life of their own. And sometimes you've got the committee with one vision, and but ultimately it's going to be the board in most communities, if not all communities, that are going to actually be the ones signing the, the contract and writing the check. Yeah, Donna, I've experienced the good, the bad, and the ugly when it comes to landscape committees. What I prefer and and my best experiences have been, you know, committees, whether it's a landscape committee or security committee, it doesn't matter, but I think they serve a purpose. My best experience and what I would recommend is, you know, those committees have a chairman and the landscape vendor or that representative work directly with the chairman and sort of gathering the information Then when it's ready for presentation or ready to sort of present to a broader audience, which in this case would be the committee, then bring the committee in, sort of solicit some feedback at that point. But sort of the the heavy lifting has already been done, and that's sort of a one-on-one process. Starting that process at the beginning on the front end with the entire committee, it can just really bog it down and really get in the way of making some progress. This way, the committee still gets involved. They still have input but it doesn't bog it down and getting sort of getting it across the finish line. And ultimately, that's the product that that gets put in front of the board of directors. You know the old joke about committees, right? What do you call a camel? A horse by committee? (laughs) There you go. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so you come up with a plan. Do you know when you're giving your proposal, whether or not you've got competition or they've basically selected you and now they're just looking for your idea, your concept? Yeah, we'll always ask on the front end. Certainly, if there's other uh, vendors participating in the process, we'll ask who that is. Not all, you know, we're not always given that information, but we always like to have it. Not, and we usually leave it there. We don't dig or pry any deeper. We just kind of want to know what the playing field is. And, you know, it sort of helps us kind of frame up our process and presentation as we go forward. If we can get more information in regard to who those other vendors are, we, it's a small world out there. We kind of know sort of what they favor and don't favor. So, yeah, it, it kind of gives us some some important information on the front end that, that we can use to our advantage. So I wanted to talk to you, Brian. Last week, Governor DeSantis signed a bill into law which makes it easier for a homeowner to remove a tree that, in quotes, poses an unacceptable risk. So this law is one that's almost certain to create confusion in our community associations. I can imagine owners in HOAs saying, you know, I had to rip that tree out, even though there's architectural requirements in the documents. I can also imagine some associations deciding to rip out trees and saying it's not a material alteration. They had to rip it out. What the law requires is documentation from an arborist saying that the tree has to be removed. So how often have you been asked to provide that documentation that a tree poses an unacceptable risk and has to be removed? Don, I would say almost weekly. Here, in, especially in the South Florida market, many of your managed HOAs are starting, you know, that are, let's say, 15, 20 years old. The canopy, uh, you know, the trees are also getting 15 to 20 years old. And that's about the point or about the time that they begin posing those types of problems. So it's not uncommon at all. In fact, unfortunately, it's more common than, than we'd like. 
You know, when I was thinking about uh, taping our episode, Brian, I was thinking about the homeowners community where I live and have lived for more than a decade. And it's in Western Broward County. And what attracted me to the neighborhood was this beautiful live oak canopy down the main street, right? Now that canopy actually was decimated during one of our hurricanes years ago, but it has now grown back. But, you know, as I'm walking through the neighborhood, I see that the sidewalks are actually buckling now. They're rising. So what kind of trees and plant materials pose problems for sidewalks, driveways, homes, pools, that type of thing? Yeah. So, you know, just a quick point of reference. We're currently, East Coast Facilities is currently working for two master associations in South Florida. One is in the process of removing 426 mature live oak trees. Just heartbreaking, right? And I'll get to that. And then another community, it's a master association, a little over 300 trees. So it's it's a big problem. To answer your question, live oak trees, mahogany trees on the hardwood side, on the palm side, royal palms, beautiful, self-pruning, some indigenous to Florida, but their root systems are very aggressive. They protrude out of the ground. But I think in every scenario, kind of, it's kind of a, like a whale in a fishbowl. Uh, the developers, these trees will do fine if they're given the space and the room to do what they do. But unfortunately, developers, real estate's expensive. And they put these beautiful, majestic trees 20 years later are planted in a five or six foot wide swale. And it's just not enough room for these trees, like I said, to do what they're supposed to do. And so really fundamentally, it's not so much the type of tree, it's it's just the area in which they're put. Does East Coast facilities work with developers on in new communities? We don't. We're not so much. We don't get too involved on uh, the development side or the construction side. It sounds like a, a developer would be well advised to work with an experienced landscape architect. Just to your point, in terms of placing plant material, which when they first planted, you know, knowing what size it's going to be at maturity, where it should be located, what the potential problems are, how vulnerable that material is to, you know, windstorms and, and other issues. Yeah, we talk about just managing inputs into a landscape, but certainly management of tree canopies, if done right, can be relatively expensive. But I think at the end of the day, you know, they're not only managing the canopy, but, you know, they present significant, you know, safety and liability, potential liability situations. I can show you some pictures in which sidewalks have been lifted six, eight inches up out of the ground, obviously in a neighborhood with bicycles and strollers. It's a big, big deal. You mentioned a community where you're removing 420 live oaks, which the oak trees create a a beautiful leafy canopy. We had uh, Jane Gilbert, the world's first chief heat officer on the podcast. I don't know if you had a chance to listen to that, but you might want to, given the synergy between what her office does and what you do in terms of landscaping. She talked about the heat heat, uh, canyons and how important these shade trees are. So if you're removing 420 live oaks, what are you replacing them with? Yeah, we're going back with palm trees, different types of hardwoods, hardwoods that in which root systems are, are not near as intrusive, that at maturity they're defined as either small to medium-sized trees. And, you know, the palette is pretty broad with that. It doesn't give you the canopy that a live oak tree will give you. I was going to say, have you ever tried to get shade on your Oh, yeah, yeah. And it, it, it's unfortunate because, again, going back to the fundamental issue, if they had another four to six feet of area, swale area to do what they do, it would not be an issue. 
That's unfortunate. Well, I want to draw your attention to another Florida law that was passed several years ago, and that's regarding xeriscaping. So that law, which I'm sure you're familiar with, Brian, says that a homeowners association cannot prohibit an owner from installing xeriscaping on their lot. Maybe explain to the people listening what xeriscaping is. Yeah, so they use some different terminology. Xeriscaping is essentially, it's a sustainability issue. And what I mean by that, it's essentially managing the amount of inputs into managing the landscape and managing the outputs that a landscape produces. And what I mean by inputs, it's, you know, fertilization, labor, you know, landscape debris on the outsy side. So it's really a process of managing what I refer to as the insies and the outsies. I think a lot of people just inherently think when they hear xeriscaping is water management, and that's a big part of it. But the broader, sort of the broader definition of xeriscaping is a sustainability issue. I think many people think when they hear xeriscaping, they hear ugly. <laughs> they think scrub brush, rocks. What does it look like? I mean, does it look like desert material? Yeah, we'll go to Phoenix or Palm Springs. Um, yeah, you know, you can introduce rock and hardscapes into it. You can introduce, you know, a lot of different types of plants or the plant palette into a xeriscape. Again, at the end of the day, it's plant material or a plant palette that requires less inputs for it to, to function the way it's supposed to function. And, you know, it requires less fertilizer, requires less irrigation or water management. On the other side of that produces much less debris in managing that landscape. And that's that's good for the ecosystem, both on the front end and the back end. I mean, we've seen terrible droughts out in California. Do you think we're ever going to get to the point where only xeriscaping, only, you know, this type of plant material is going to be permitted, where we're no longer going to see people with these green lawns that they're having to, you know, having to water and use precious resources to maintain? Don, I've worked in markets. I've worked in the Arizona markets. I've worked in uh, the Southern California markets, Northern California markets, which, you know, five to six inches of rainfall a year is not uncommon. And as short as, let's say, seven or eight years ago, when California went through its last big drought, a lot of municipalities were subsidizing both homeowners and businesses to convert their landscape to a xeriscape type landscape and also to introduce smart controllers. That's a whole, it's technology that manages water based on need and not just, you know, a human's interaction with it. That's fascinating to me because I'm wondering if some of our associations can't start taking advantage of technology. You know, do you have those rain, those basins where you would catch rainwater and then repurpose it? Is that a possibility? Never been involved with that. Escaping isn't just kind of you know, rocks and kind of desert type plants. It's using like in, in the Florida market, using indigenous plants, plants that are native to the market. And again, inherently, they're going to require, you know, less fertilization. They're native and, and in many instances don't require any inputs. Give me a few examples like hibiscus. Is hibiscus indigenous? No, not that okay, I'm see? <laughs> see, I would think hibiscus is indigenous. Give me an example. How about bromeliads? Are they indigenous? No. Oh, see, my two top that right off the top of my head, not indigenous. So uh, what co- would be? Co- cocoa palms are indigenous. Wax myrtles are indigenous. You know, as far as some tree types, royal palms are indigenous to the state. So unfortunately, a lot of the indigenous plant material isn't the most aesthetic, pleasing plant material. But again, it satisfies the xeriscape component. Is there any such thing as truly maintenance-free landscaping? I mean, even xeriscaping requires some yeah. maintenance, doesn't it? 
Well, yes, I refer to it as concrete and silk plants. Okay. Okay. <laughs> no, there's, and I've told many people, there's no such thing as no maintenance. There's such thing as low maintenance, but not no, no, no maintenance. Well, that's a great segue into my next question. So, you know, we've seen a lot of issues with regard to developers over the decades that have built, because they build up, right, Brian, you know, land is at a premium, so they're going to just going to pack it as densely as possible. And a lot of them have put the parking, have putting pools and plant materials on top of parking structures. And what's happened over the years is that the pools always leak and you've got these heavy duty concrete planters where you've got plant material in it and that starts leaking. And again, that, you know, accelerates the deterioration of the parking structure. Are you using any sort of, you mentioned preserved trees, any sort of preserved trees or preserved plant material in lieu of natural landscaping? Because a lot of my clients are pulling that stuff off of their pool decks and trying to decide what to put on because they don't want to just have a a pool deck that's just concrete. They want to have something that's aesthetically pleasing. Are there any trends in that regard? Yeah, there are. In fact, we're actively involved with the high rise, the condominium high rise down in Brickell Bay in downtown Miami. Seven floor pool deck. Planters, original planters are eight foot deep. The landscape architect put coconut palms on. (laughs) Imagine that, right? That's just bad on, on multiple levels. But we're seeing a trend and what we're, we're introducing to this customer is we're going to use real plant material, but we're going to use shallow rooted plant material that requires only two to three feet of soil. And the bottom portion of those planters, we're introducing a product called Geofoam. You can get them custom made to fit into these planters. They're very lightweight. And instead of you know, the traditional way of managing these planters was to fill up the bottom third or bottom half with drainage rock, putting filter cloth over that, and then putting soil on top of the filter cloth. Very heavy, very time consuming. Envision, you know, getting 100 cubic yards of drainage rock up to the seventh floor of a condominium complex. Extremely expensive, hundreds of thousands of dollars expensive. So we're introducing a product that's geofoam. Again, it's lightweight. It accomplishes what a drainage rock situation would do. And then, you know, you put the soil on top of that. And then in addition to that, we're using shallow rooted plant material. That all makes sense. Are you finding that boards are becoming more sophisticated about these issues rather than just thinking about what this is going to look like today or next year, thinking about long term? How is this going to look? How are we going to maintain it? Is it going to present any safety issues? Are you finding boards becoming more sophisticated? Yes and no. What we try to do, what I've always tried to do is sort of on the front end of any relationship, sort of bring a consultant perspective to the relationship and say, hey, let's not worry about the business side of this business. Let's talk about what your needs are. Let's talk about how we can remedy some of those needs with the latest and greatest technology and you know what's out there that can introduce some sustainability into your landscape, reduce your overall operational costs over you know, a period of time you know, kind of manage, be friendly to the ecosystem, you know, as a result of all that. So, yeah, you still see a lot of kind of old-fashioned, traditional sort of, and we see that in a lot of just the scope of work and things that, you know, in an RFP, the things that we're given. So, again, as a result, what I try to do is bring a consultant's perspective to it. You know, most times they're open and willing to listen. You know what I don't see as much anymore? And I think this is progress, those impatience. So a lot of associations used to plant those colorful seasonal flowers, but they required a lot of water. I see that less and less these days. And I think that's because landscape architects like you have educated boards that there's there's better alternatives. 
Yeah, you know, I refer to it, it's an acronym, ILMP, it's Integrated Landscape Management Program. And essentially it takes, it kind of inverts sort of the seven or eight components of a landscape. You know, typically a developer or a landscape architect puts emphasis on flowers first, then turf, and then shrubs and those types of things. And, you know, at the end, sort of the island sort of inverts that sequencing and put safety, sustainability, managing tree canopy, irrigation sort of at the top of the list. And as a result of that, you know, again, it introduces lower operational costs over the long haul and really maybe a little front end cost, but the ROIC on that is usually easy to measure and a lot faster than one might imagine. So June 1st is the start of our six-month hurricane season, which always puts all of us on edge, but I imagine... As a landscaper, you also cringe thinking about what might potentially happen to all the beautiful plant projects you just installed. I want to talk about that a little bit. First of all, how many associations actually have the foresight to reach out to East Coast facilities and say, look, if we get damaged by a storm, how quickly can you get out and what price is it going to be for debris removal? How many of them talk about that with you when they're negotiating their contracts? Well, I think that's sort of a two-part answer. I don't know sort of the number percentage of communities that approach us. But at the end of the day, whether they approach us or we approach them, we address that issue with 100% of them on the front end. And we have sort of a hurricane agreement template that we provide. Essentially, it's kind of identifies or defines hurricane rates for pre-storm tasks as well as post-storm tasks that's inclusive of, you know, removing and managing debris after the storm and, you know, after the cleanup is done. Do you remember the community, my community, I told you about with that beautiful live oak canopy? So I happened to be on the board at the time that that canopy fell. It was funny. I I felt like I was back in middle school because we had to ride bikes to each other's homes (laughs) because nobody could pass because they had fallen into the roadway. What our community did, though, we had uh, sufficient reserves to immediately remove that debris. And, you know, we already knew, we already had addressed it with our landscape company. We knew what it was going to cost and we had reserved for it. So we got it cleared out within 48 hours, which was crucial. You know, the last thing you want is to have debris blocking, you know, egress and ingress to the community. Potentially, if people need an ambulance, you know, that could be a a huge problem. Yeah. You know, Don, I think kind of taking that issue just back a little bit further, you know, it's sort of that cliche, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. And what what I have noticed, especially in the Florida market post early 2000s, when we had uh, those series of storms, a lot of communities proactively managing their canopy, getting the pruning done, whether it's palm trees or hardwoods, seen a significant increase over the last decade or so of boards and communities managing and trimming their trees. Because if you don't, essentially they're wind socks and they're much more vulnerable to storms than, than canopies that are trimmed and opened up. What we also learned from the early 2000s, and it really depends on a community's tolerance threshold, is is FEMA. And, you know, if it's claimed disaster area, FEMA comes in and, again, stack and pile or, you know, stacking piles of debris. Many times the cost of picking up that debris will be sponsored by FEMA. Now, that's not going to be immediate. So really a community's threshold or tolerance threshold have how long they're willing to deal with piles of debris, but that's always, you know, a possibility as well. 
Although FEMA has taken a hands-off approach to gated communities, you know, we've been fighting them for for years over that. Sometimes they have said they're not going to go into guard-gated communities to remove the debris. Some cities like West and I know went into their guard-gated communities and removed the debris at their cost. But that's still kind of in flux, I think, Brian, in terms of the communities FEMA will pick up debris from and which they won't. So I think we still have that little bit of an issue with FEMA. But I did want to talk about the preparation and the pruning, because there is some pushback sometimes from owners that they don't like the way the trees look when they're pruned. I think there's a term, is it hat racking? What is, <laughs> is, that, the, is that the term for some where it looks, explain that a little bit. Well, commercially, hat racking is illegal. And as a tree pruning vendor or contractor, you can get in a lot of trouble. Quite frankly, you can use your license in the county of Broward if you hat racks. There are statutes in a lot of municipalities that govern a process of not hat racking. So, but, you know, managing a tree canopy and thinning it out, the old terminology used to use the term class two pruning. Essentially, that it, it keeps the overall integrity of the shape of the tree, but it, it really thins it out, opens it up and Again, the integrity, the shape, and the overall you know integrity of the tree is maintained. Have you ever had an owner or a board member chain themselves to a tree and say you will not? <laughs> you no, I haven't, I haven't had that experience. <laughs> <laughs> now that I've said it, it might happen. What kind of warranty do you give on your plant material? Yeah, so any community or any landscape that we install, that we're managing the landscape or the components that's impacting the longevity of that, meaning we're contracted to manage the community. We'll warranty that plant material as long as we're maintaining the landscape. If that's three months or six years, we'll warranty that material. For a scenario where we're not managing, typically it's 30 days. What we really like to do is if we're doing an install in a community that we're not managing, we like to coordinate a sort of a, a handoff walkthrough with you know, a representative from our company, a representative from the, the vendor of choice or the vendor that's managing the community so that it's transparent. Any issues are dealt with. There's a period of time that those issues are determined, agreed upon, they're remedied, and then there's an official handoff. And at that point, the warranty ends. Do you have your own nurseries where you grow your own trees and plant material? We do not, no. So you work with nurseries throughout the country? Yeah, we work with a variety of brokers primarily in the Florida and the, the markets that we're in. Can associations get insurance to cover plant material that's destroyed by a windstorm? You know, Donna, I'm not sure. Maybe that's a question for you. (laughs) (laughs) That's actually a question. I just had Andrea Northrup on. I should have asked that question. I think there is specific coverage, but I think so. I'll have to go back and listen to the episode, but it's probably cost prohibitive. So I live in a managed community. And when Wilma came through, how many years ago that was, but I had some significant landscape damage and my policy covered the replacement of that plant material. So I guess the answer is yes, (laughs) it can be done. So several years ago, Brian, there was a wrongful death case in South Florida. It was an elderly driver. She was backing out of her community. She ran over a young bicyclist claiming she couldn't see over the hedge. It was actually determined that the hedge was several feet over the local ordinance requirement for hedges. The management company in that instance and the board were both sued. My question for a landscaper is, do you look at the local ordinances in terms of hedge height? I know if you're maintaining, is that an issue? How does that work? We do. And we bring that to the attention of the management company and the board. But it's not just safety from, you know, vehicular or pedestrian kind of incidents, but, you know, theft, shrubs, people up to no good can hide behind. They become areas of it's really a matter of managing all of that and managing line of sight. 
But to answer your question, yeah, it's, it's always a big issue. When we start a community, go into a new community, we do a, a sort of an initial assessment. And that's one of the boxes sort of at the top of the list. We, we do an assessment on line of sight. Is there any real safety or liability issues? Even trees or canopy blocking lighting, you know, in parking lots or blocking lighting in public areas, amenity areas, you know, that can become a safety or liability issue as well. Absolutely. You know, I don't think people understand how important landscaping is on several different levels. But what you just mentioned, the safety, but the sight lines for vehicular traffic. I even see it in my own community at times when landscaping is overgrown and I have to inch forward because I don't know who's coming out of that other street. So it really is critical. And it's something that boards and managers cannot afford to overlook. You know, again, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. So many times those issues are dealt with after an incident. And so what we try to do is just bring that to the attention prior to just be proactive with it, identify those areas, at least bring it to the attention of the leadership within the community and just try to encourage them, hey, listen, this can be an issue. So folks, it's not just about landscaping looking pretty. There's a number of different roles it plays. So I wanted to ask you this. I'm sure you deal with lovely clients across the board, but you might (laughs) occasionally have an unhappy client who doesn't pay you. Under Chapter 713 of the Florida Statutes, you're entitled, because you've improved real property, to record a claim of lien. How often have you ever had to do that? Yeah, we've gone to small claims sometimes in regard for you know smaller amounts of money. But I think if, as a, as a vendor, if you're doing things right and doing the right things, you have a transparent and open relationship with your customer, you kind of work through you know, disagreements or things, you know, at the end of the day, accounts receivables rarely becomes an issue. I agree. If you have that relationship, people tend to pay the people that they have relationships with. So I do agree. But you have a very useful tool in your back pocket. Yes. But to answer your question, I've never had to go that route. Well, good. I'm glad to hear that. So, Brian, if a community has a limited landscaping budget, okay, as most of them do, they don't have unlimited budgets. What would be your top tips to spend that budget to get the most bang for their buck? The best way to answer that is kind of going back to the ILIMP, the Integrated Landscape Management Program. So putting money where you're going to get the most return and really where the landscape really needs it the most. That without the proper resources, managing those components, it really affects the overall integrity and value of the landscape assets. So and that would be you know, managing the safety piece, you know, if there's safety issues out there, you know, put your money to address those first and foremost. So identify, you know, what those are. Irrigation management. At the end of the day, you know, if you don't have a properly functioning current irrigation system, it doesn't matter how many times you're mowing the grass or trimming the shrubs or spraying the weeds, the overall integrity and aesthetic or value is going to decline. So putting money into the irrigation system, managing it appropriately. Uh, So safety, irrigation, and then the canopy. You know, so many times, so much attention is put on what you see at ground level. But imagine the cost to replace a 20-year-old oak tree. It's very, very expensive. And so many times the canopy is the most expensive component of the landscape. So many times it's the most overlooked as far as sort of an inclusive landscape management program. 
You know, we fortunately have so much more emphasis these days on mental health and what's needed to improve it. And I'm always reading about how being out in nature is one of the key components to improving mental health. How much of that do you think our boards could take into account when planning little places to walk through little paths? I will tell you more and more of my communities are also planning dog parks or pet friendly areas. Got a lot of pets. We also got a lot of emotional support animals in these communities. So can you talk to me a little bit about mental health and maybe pet friendly? friendly landscaping as well. Without a doubt, Donna, I would say over the last few years, three years, I've been involved personally with creating probably a half a dozen dog areas, dog parks. It's become a huge amenity and, you know, communities are kind of working diligently to find a space or an area that they can do that. So that's certainly one park sitting areas. Yeah, it's become a big, big deal. I can tell you personally, I love walking in my neighborhood. It's a way to end the day on a relaxed note. So, Brian, I really appreciated the time that you've spent. And I have to tell you, when I was thinking about landscaping as a potential topic for this podcast, at first I said, is there enough here? And then when I started thinking about it, I said, are we going to have enough time to get through everything? Right, right, right. What's one of your craziest landscaping stories? Yeah, so this situation happened probably about 20 years ago. It was a a site in West Palm Beach. It was a kind of a high-end gated senior living facility, and it was in the West Palm Beach area. We had been managing the site for five, six years, let's say, and I had gotten to know the executive director pretty well. So it was kind of early in the morning, let's say eight or nine o'clock. My phone rings, and it's it's, uh, the executive director on the phone. He goes, Brian, I just want to let you know On the front end of this conversation, there's a sense of urgency with this phone call. I'm not going to go into the detail, but I want to know how long it's going to take for you to get here. I said, well, I'm about 20 minutes away. I'll be there in 30. I drive to the entrance. I get up to the guardhouse and the security guard says, Mr. Steele, Mr. Turner is waiting for you in the courtyard on the west side of the property. It's not a long drive, but he opens the gate and, you know, in just those two or three minutes, I'm thinking to myself, what could be so urgent about something regarding the landscape in this courtyard. So I, I drive around and the ED, he's, he's standing in the courtyard. I, I get out of the, the vehicle, I walk over and I said, you know, what's going on? We shake hands. And he looks at me and goes, okay, Brian, so what do you see about this tree that's interesting to you? And we're standing beside this pretty big tree. And I'm looking at it and I, I just don't have an answer. He said, well, let me give you a hint. He said, what is it about this tree that you don't see? And I'm looking at it and lo and behold, it's an avocado tree. It's a fairly mature avocado tree. And I said, well, it's an avocado tree, Frank, and I don't see any avocados on it. He said, interestingly enough, he goes, Brian, our chefs every year prepare an avocado-themed happy hour for our resident. And guess what day that is? I said, let me guess. It's today, isn't it? He goes, yeah, it's this afternoon, and it starts at 5 o'clock. I said, got it. So, Donna, for the next four or five hours, I went to every Publix within about a 20-mile radius and bought every avocado I could find. Sure enough, about 2 o'clock, 3 o'clock, I showed up with these boxes and boxes of avocados. Chef met me outside. We got in their avocados, but our workers had picked, believe it or not, most of the avocados off of this avocado tree. I was going to ask, what happened to the avocados? Did the tree just not produce any or? Oh, no. Our workers <laughs> decided it was theirs and not theirs. Fortunately, I knew the executive director fairly well and we got through it. We laughed quite a bit months later, but yeah. That's wild. And I suspect there was a board rule at some point about picking avocados. In oh, interestingly <laughs> enough, it was a time that I was a branch manager for Valley Crest. And in their orientation video, there was a specific part in there 
about respecting our customers' property. And even more specifically, it talked about fruit trees and, you know, respecting fruit trees in front yards, backyards, and it's theirs, not ours. And that obviously became an HR issue and some some other things, but I'm going to match your story with one of my own. (laughs) So I live in a single family home and I bought a veggie pod, which for people who don't know, it's an Australian product and it's above ground garden because in Florida, it's hard to plant, at least I think, vegetables. So I waited months for my tomato plant to grow tomatoes and it had one, (laughs) one, and it was just about ripe and my gardeners came and I went out there and the next day and it was gone. My gardener (laughs) and I said, what happened to my tomato? And he said, oh, I picked it. I ate it. It's great. Oh, geez. He's my former gardener. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's exactly what happened. Listen, Brian, I want to thank you so much for joining us today. It's clear that you love what you do and definitely make your communities brighter and more beautiful. And I uh, just want to thank you for sharing your thoughts with us. Well, you're very welcome. And as I've always said, I'm a bleed green kind of guy. <laughs> and I appreciate the time. I appreciate the invite, Donna. Thank you. Thank you for joining us today. Don't forget to follow and rate us on your favorite podcast platform or visit TakeItToTheBoard.com for more ways to connect. Mm